Good morning. My name is Kelsey Park, and I'm a part of the Misty Way community group. And I will be reading from Hosea 14, verses 1 through 9 this morning. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, and we will say no more, our God, to the work of our hands. In you, the orphan finds mercy. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive, and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright shall walk in them. But transgressors stumble in them. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning again, Christ Central. All right, that's a little better. It is a privilege to be here with you for this second week in a row to bring God's word uh, before you and hear what the Lord would have to say to us this morning. Uh, You've heard our passage from Hosea chapter 14, verses 1 through 9, the last verses of the book of Hosea. And I want to speak to you this morning on this subject, the road to recovery. The road to recovery. And here's the point of what I want to share with us this morning. It's this. is This is what Jesus Christ does. He calls us, he calls us to wisdom, hearing his promise of healing and turning from our addiction to sin. That Jesus Christ calls us to wisdom, to the hearing and responding to his promise to bring healing and turning from our addiction to sin. Would you pray with me now? Our Lord and our God, we do thank you again for this, your word that is living and active sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts, God. We are all in this place, naked and exposed to your eyes. You are the one to whom we must all give account. And Lord, we want the cry of our hearts to be what we have already sung this morning, 
holy. There is no one like you. There's no one beside you. And so, Lord, would you be pleased this morning through the preaching of your word to open our eyes that we might see your wonder, Jesus. And come running to you for life and every good thing. We ask it in your name. Amen. Amen and amen. Well, I, I don't know if I shared this last week, but I always talk about the fact that I'm a native New Yorker. I live in Washington, D.C., but I am born and bred in Brooklyn, New York, and so it might be no surprise to you that I am a lifelong fan, uh, fan of the New York Yankees. Uh, you know, and people, people, in my opinion, uh, uh, some people, I would say, unreasonably despise the New York Yankees and like to refer to the most accomplished and dominant team in the history of Major League Baseball, maybe even in all of sports, as the evil empire. As the saying goes, you know, haters are going to hate. But however, I, I want to say to you, this is, I, I just got, this really has nothing to do with the Yankees, but I need to just, need to just kind of share that with you. There, here's the point. There might be another organization I realize more worthy of that title, the evil empire. And, I, you know, I'm a bit of a technology junkie, uh, and so every year I watch the Apple keynote address. Yes, I got, a, I got somebody here with me, right? Their new products and features always put on display. And the problem, of course, is that I love Apple products. They are on my wrist. They are in my uh, uh, pocket. They are right here on this pulpit even. They are the best thing since sliced bread. Uh, if you were here last week, you might recall me talking about how marketers specialize in creating the organized uh, condition of dissatisfaction, right? So I, what do I find myself doing as I watch the Apple keynote? I find myself going, ooh, ah, oh, that's nice. I want one of these. I, I need that new feature. I could just put it on the, uh, the credit card. And, and then a voice in my head, maybe even the voice of the Holy Spirit, says something like, you can't justify spending $1,000 for this thing that you don't really need. And then I start to feel like Abraham negotiating with the Lord to try to save his nephew Lot from destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah. You know, my, my motives are less pure, but I was like, well, you know, Lord, if I just maybe trade in my iPhone uh, 11 uh, and I just get the iPhone 12 Pro, not the iPhone 12 Pro Max. Then comes the voice again, you don't need it. And in a tongue-in-cheek way, I'm about to start calling Apple the evil empire because they are so good at encouraging my idolatry. They're so good at making addicts. But you know, that's the first step on the road to recovery in addictions. It's to admit that you have a problem. Right? This is not my attempt to make light of the reality of addictions, right? But see, the addiction that every human being shares 
is an addiction to sin. An addiction, an addiction, what I mean is an addiction that leads us to search and to strain for ultimate pleasure in everything but God. If we were to read the chapter right before our sermon passage, Hosea chapter 13, we would see how Israel's addiction to her sin exploded in an idolatry that led to her destruction. And I'm grateful that Hosea's message doesn't end with a message of doom and gloom and destruction and devastation. Hosea ends his message by showing them and us the road to recovery. Make no mistake about it, God specializes in reaching into the inside to heal and renew addicts. The question is, can we see our addiction? This last chapter in Hosea is set before us in a sandwich structure. You have these two slices of bread, a a call at the beginning in verses 1 to 3, and a call at the end in verse number 9. The meat in the middle, the meat of the sandwich in verses 4 to 8 is the promise of God. We have a call to repentance to begin, and then in the middle, a promise of healing and restoration, and then a call to wisdom and discernment. And my prayer is that we would both hear and respond to God's call and his promise that is set before us. So here are the three things. We want to see and respond to first this call to repentance. And then the promise in the middle, the promise of restoration. And then lastly, the call to recognize the truth. Hosea says in verse number one, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled by your iniquity. This is a call to repentance, isn't it? He he says, y'all need to recognize, you all need to recognize that you have stumbled. Why have you stumbled? Because of your iniquity. Iniquity is a word that we find repeated again and again in the book of Hosea. The city of Bethel, which which means house of God, uh, Hosea renames Bethel Beth-Aven which means house of iniquity. He said to them back in verse 5 of chapter 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim will stumble in their iniquity. At the end of chapter 6 and at the beginning of chapter 7, we find the prophet saying, the Lord saying through the prophet, when I restore the fortunes of my people, when I heal uh, Israel, then the iniquity of Ephraim will be exposed and the wickedness of Samaria, for they practice falsehood. When the, while the thief breaks in, gangs attack in the streets. Before restoration would come, the Lord would expose and shine a light on the ugliness of their iniquity. They wouldn't be able to find healing until they were confronted with the fact and the reality of how desperately sick they actually were. And Hosea, 
Hosea has been specific about their sin. He has not been generic. He has said they practice falsehood. They are thieves. They love gang violence. They have no conscience. They rejoice over evil. They rejoice over lying. They commit adultery. They are alcoholics. They are mockers. They are treacherous. They are out of control. They are ignorant. They refuse to repent. They lack sense. They are traitors. They are full of idolatry. And that's all just from chapter 7. Hear this. And over the course of his ministry, Hosea has been calling the people to repent. He's been calling them to recognize their sin and to turn to the Lord. Come, he said in verse 1 of chapter 6, come, let us return to the Lord, for he tore us that he might heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. And the people's response throughout has been, no, we refuse to repent. So the last word, his last word is to reissue the call, to expose the fact that they've stumbled Here in verse 1, he calls the people to a complete repentance, not giving God lip service. And he does it a little bit differently than than the way he has done it throughout the most of the, the book. And I love what he does. He leads the people, he leads the people in a corporate confession of sin and repentance. He says to them in verse 2, take with you words. That is, in your turning, in your returning to the Lord your God, take these words with you. This is what you are to say to the Lord. And here's my translation of of verse number 2. Hosea says, to say to the Lord this, you are the one who takes away every iniquity and receive what is good. So we vow our lips as bulls. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses and we will not again say our God to the work of our hands. With you, the orphan finds mercy. He dictates to them what they ought to say. He puts the words of confession in their mouths. This is what you ought to say, but wait, wait, wait a minute, pastor, right? Isn't that cheating? Doesn't their confession have to come from the heart? Don't they have to come up with their own words for it to be genuine? Of course, genuine repentance has to come from the heart, and it can't merely be words that we say. But notice this with me, please. This is a call to corporate confession. This is a call for them to be a confessing people. I might privately and I might individually confess my sins to the Lord, but the Lord is interested, listen, the Lord is interested in creating a community of confessors. Hosea has shown Israel that they have become a people who are defined by adultery and idolatry. 
He is now calling them to become a people who are defined by confession and repentance. And that is still the call. (laughs) That is still the call. What Jesus Christ creates in his church are communities that are defined by confession and repentance. So you will normally find in the Bible plural nouns when it comes to this reality. In his confession, Hosea tells Israel to say, we vow our lips. Assyria will not save us. We will not ride on horses. We will not say to our God, to, uh, to, we will not say our God to the work of our hands. Apostle John would come centuries later and say to the church in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, if we confess, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from every unrighteousness. The one, the one who cleanses and the one who forgives is singular, the Lord, the one. Those who confess and receive forgiveness are plural, the people of God. What had Israel been putting their stock in? They had put their stock in the fact that they were a people chosen by God. They were the elect. They operated with a pride and an arrogance in their election instead of a humility. And Christians can do the same thing. Jesus says to his disciples in John 15 and 16, you didn't choose me, I chose you. And if we realize, if we really realize how jacked up we actually are, being chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ should result in a deep, deep sense of humility and gratitude that overflows into an ongoing life of confession and repentance. This is why every Sunday, we did it this morning in worship, we we have corporate confession. When we do it, our desire is that they are not simply words that we repeat uh, to get on with the service, but that the Spirit of God has through the proclamation of the Word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ exposed the sin and the idolatry of our hearts, and we come to God corporately knowing that He hears and He forgives. That is precisely, that is precisely the content of Hosea's prayer. He begins with confessing that the Lord is forgiving. You take away all iniquity. Let the Lord know, he's saying, let the Lord know that you know that he accepts what is good. That is, he accepts confession from the heart. So let him know that, uh, that we offer, that we vow the sacrifice of our lips as bulls. And in so doing, we will turn away from seeking security and salvation in anyone but you. Assyria will not save us. 
This is evidenced in the confession by them not sending envoys out to the Assyrians to pay tribute, to make treaties, and to become their subjects. That's what it means when it says, we won't ride on horses. We will reject our idolatry. We will not call the works of our hands our God. We will not give divine status to anything that has been created. And he ends the prayer with words that imply we will not boast in our status as God's people. We are orphans and not worthy to be called children, but we rejoice that in you the orphan finds mercy. I heard a couple of amens, right? We don't, we, didn't, we don't find an amen at the end of Hosea's prayer of confession in verse number three, but we are, we are definitely led to say amen. We might be tempted to say amen and then just go home and rejoice. But not yet because it actually gets better. There's a word of assurance that comes after this confession. There's a word of promise that that follows, and it comes directly from God himself. There's a shift in the person who is speaking, and there comes this promise of of restoration. The Lord says in verse 4, I will heal their apostasy. I'm going to heal their backsliding. I'm going to heal their waywardness. I'm going to heal their rebelliousness. Here is the meat of the chapter. God's promise of restoration. The Lord stated the problem back in chapter 5 and verse 13 when he said this. He said, the Lord said, when Ephraim sees his sickness and Judah sees his wounds, Ephraim goes to Assyria and he appeals to the great king but he's not able to save you, nor is he able to cure you of your wound. They thought that they could find their healing in Assyria, and Hosea directs them to confess Assyria won't save us, and the Lord responds and says, I know, but I am the Lord your healer. I will heal you. You're sick. You have a sickness that nobody can heal but me. And this is what makes the promise so phenomenal. There's a call to return, but they can't return unless the Lord acts. The Lord says, I will love them freely, for my anger has turned away from them. You understand, like, real free love has got nothing to do with the hippie movement from the 60s and the 70s. Real free love is God's gracious, abundant love that he lavishes on undeserving sick folk like you and me. This book is being wrapped up with a reminder of the Lord's promise that he made. We heard last week in chapter 2 and verse 14, back when Hosea and his marriage to Gomer was still front and center in the book, serving as a metaphor for God's relationship with Israel when he promises in verse 14 of chapter 2, I myself am going to allure her. I'm going to lead her in the wilderness and I will speak to her heart. This love has to be free. 
It has to be free because we cannot earn it. It has to be free because there's nothing in us that makes us deserving of it. If we don't grasp our sickness, the Lord talking about loving people freely will make absolutely no sense to us. You see, this is the problem that the Lord Jesus is dealing with in the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9 when he calls uh, Levi the tax collector. And, 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 and he, this man, Levi, is a man of ill repute, the Bible says. And, and he calls Levi to follow him. And Levi becomes a disciple of the Lord Jesus and invites Jesus over to his house where, where other people whose reputations are as bad as Levi's are, 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 are also invited. And Jesus is, he's just reclining at table, as the Bible says. He's, 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 he's having his meal. They're enjoying this meal together. And the Pharisees, the Pharisees who don't understand, the Pharisees who do not understand God's free love say to Jesus' disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus hears their complaint and he responds in verses 12 and 13. The Lord says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means, he says. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. You understand, Jesus responds to them by quoting from the book of Hosea, chapter 6, and verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. I'm not here to call the righteous. I'm here to call sinners to repentance. And of course, the Pharisees had missed the words of Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, where the, where the Bible tells us there is no one who does good, not even one. It missed their own sickness, and we can do the same. Jesus comes, and he confirms God's promise of restoration and healing and love that we see in Hosea chapter 14. And we, we shouldn't miss the fact that, that this promise is nothing short of the promise of the fullness of life in the kingdom of God. What does the Lord mean when he says in verses 5 through 7 of Hosea 14, I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive and his fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. This is a picture of great provision and abundance. 
Without dew, their agricultural season would be cut short. Although the dew burns away late morning from the heat of the sun, the daily morning mist over the ground was necessary for, for agriculture throughout most of the year. This promise is a picture of beauty and abundance and protection. The sickly, rebellious people will be healed and they will, be call, they will blossom like the lily, the Lord says. They'll be smelling fragrant and good, they will dwell under his shadow. God is saying, I'm going to make my people beautiful. I'm going to provide for them. I'm going to protect them. This is the outworking of the the Lord's free love towards his people is the type of love that beautifies from the inside out. It's the type of love that the Lord Jesus Christ has for his church. It's the kind of love that the Apostle Paul talks about in the letter to the Ephesians in chapter 5, verses 25 through 27, where he says, Husbands, love your wives the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with, uh, with the word, here it is, so that he might present to himself the church in splendor, without spot, without wrinkle, or anything like that, so that she might be holy and without any blemishes. Hosea is saying this is what it looks like in the kingdom of God. The promise of healing and restoration is a promise to clean us up, to bind us to himself forever. In Hosea chapter 14, the Lord uses the richest agricultural terminology to describe it. And then he, he wraps up that promise in one more word of assurance in verse 8. He says, O Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? It is I who answer and look after you. I am like an evergreen cypress. From me comes your fruit. This is a rhetorical question. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? The sense of the question, what it does, it looks back to the beginning of their relationship with, their, with the Lord all the way to the present He's asking them, he's saying, in the whole of my relationship, in the whole of my life with the people of Israel, what have I ever had to do with idols? And the answer is nothing. He's saying your fruit, your provision, your abundance never came from idols. It always came from me. And it still comes from me. We hear the same echo from the lips of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 7 when Paul is talking to a, it's a jacked up church in Corinth. All kind of strife, all kinds of idolatry. And he asks them this rhetorical question in verse 7 of chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, look, what, what do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you did not receive? Well, if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? 
In other words, he's saying everything you have comes from one source, the Lord God, always. And woe is us if we ever act as if what we have comes from any other source than him. Because what it means is that if we are recipients of God's gracious provision, that means we are stewards of God's gracious provision. It means we are not owners of everything we have. You understand? You remember last week when, when the Lord said, listen, it's my oil, my wine. All of it, it's mine. You're just the stewards of it. And what this should have done for Israel and what it should do for us is keep us in, in assured of the reality of God's promise with a particular humility. Because remember, okay, Hosea chapter 14, what is the context of when, of this, of this being delivered to the people? This promise is made to them in the middle of a desperate and dire situation for the nation. The nation is about to be overrun by the Assyrians. Their once prosperous economy is in shambles. Everything is falling apart around them. The pe people are going to die in warfare. The Lord said to them in Chapter 13 and verse 16, he said, Samaria shall bear her guilt because she's rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their little ones shall be dashed in pieces and their pregnant women ripped open. And here comes this promise of love and dew and beauty and flourishing and protection and abundance while everything around them is saying the exact opposite. The Lord is saying, I've had never had anything to do with idols. I still have nothing to do with idols. Your material prosperity drove you. You let it drive you into false worship. The promise, but the promise is sure. So don't let your loss of prosperity drive you into idolatry either. Understand, right? Here's the deal. This is, this is the reality of the human condition. We can use anything as excuse to drive us into idolatry. Do I have too much? Oh, wonder, look at how wonderful I am. Look at all the, the things my hands have brought me. Right? Do I have nothing? Has it all gone away? Oh, why, why is it like this? God must not be real. <laughs> God's promise of love to those who repent and turn to him is sure no matter what the circumstances look like. So the first slice of the bread in this road to recovery is the call to repentance. The meat in the middle is the assurance of God's promise to those who repent. The final slice of bread from Hosea is a call to recognize the truth of what he is saying. In verse 9, he says this, he says, who is wise? Let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. 
For the ways of the Lord are right, and the righteous live by them, but the rebellious stumble by them. He wraps up the entire book. He wraps up the entire book with a wisdom saying. He wraps it up with, if you will, a proverb. In verse 13 of chapter 13, he had said that Ephraim was an unwise son. Why was Ephraim an unwise son? Because he didn't recognize his opportunity to repent and be born into a new life with God. They were saying, no, thank you. We are not interested in repentance and restoration on God's term. And so Hosea's last call is, don't be no fool. Don't be unwise children. I'm calling for you all to have wisdom and discernment in response to the things that I have written. And when he says, let the wise understand these things, let the discerning know them, the the, these things he's talking about is the entirety of his message. Everything from Hosea's jacked up marriage to Gomer, all the pain that there was in dealing with an unfaithful wife, addicted to a life of prostitution, how he had redeemed her and went and paid money to a pimp to buy his own wife back and instead of treating her like a worthless slave, recommitted himself to her. Hosea's call is letting us know that you need the wisdom and the discernment that comes from God in order to make the connection that is not that it's about us and not about them. That it's a picture of our rebellion and the links to which God will go to buy us back to redeem us. We need the wisdom that comes from God to see clearly that this message is about the cross of Jesus Christ. It is about God's very own dissatisfaction to leave you in your rebellion. It is about his dissatisfaction to leave us in our rebellion and the lengths to which he would go, the price he'd be willing to pay, the death of the Son of God so that we could receive the promise of getting beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy and gladness instead of mourning and sorrow. I love this last word. Recognize that the ways of the Lord are right. That is, that the way of the Lord, the ways of the Lord are straight. They are smooth. The righteous walk by them and live by them. The rebellious stumble by them. Well, who are the righteous? The righteous are those who respond to the call to repent. The rebellious are those who reject the call to confess our sins and repent. The rebellious are those who think that Jesus wasn't talking about them when he said, I came to call sinners to repentance. The rebellious are those who think he's talking about other people, not me. The rebellious are those who want to remain in their addiction to sin. Hosea started the chapter by saying to Israel, your iniquity has caused you to stumble. He ends the chapter by saying, if you want to continue to rebel and refuse to repent, then you'll keep on stumbling. The implication of verse number nine is that this confession and repentance 
is not just about making a one-time decision to follow the Lord. I'm good because I repented of my sin and I put my faith in Jesus Christ as my Savior and my Lord. Amen. But this call is not about you punching a ticket to heaven. It is about a life and a lifestyle of confession and repentance, a lifestyle of corporate confession and repentance. The ways of the Lord are right. They are straight, and the righteous do what? They live by them. They base their very lives on the ways of the Lord. They live daily following his ways. And Hosea ends his message with a snapshot picture of two kinds of people. He's delivered to them the word of the Lord. His message has been hard to hear and at several several points hard to understand. But he's had a lot to say about the ways of the Lord in terms of what he's condemned in their lifestyle. He's shown them the, the perils of prosperity condemning their consumerism and their materialism that dominates their minds, condemning their adultery and the prostitution that they're satisfied to keep practicing, condemning their injustice and their lack of care for the poor, condemning their clamoring for political position and power by deceit and treachery, condemning their self-indulgent desire to pursue the good life by any means necessary. Hosea has said that judgment is coming because they embrace what the Lord hates and refuse to do what the Lord loves, which is to repent so that they can do justice, love mercy and walk humbly with their God. This is just like Jesus does when he speaks in parables and he says, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Hosea is asking you and I, Do we have the wisdom that comes from God to hear the words and understand because the same word causes some to respond with confession and repentance and submission to the Lord, receiving restoration and reconciliation and life in his ways, while that same word causes others to keep on stumbling, tripped up because we're angered, we're offended, over the ways of the Lord, wanting wanting our ways to be the Lord's ways instead of the other way around. As one commentator asks, here it is, I'm I'm done in a, as I like to say, in a Presbyterian, Presbyterian sort of way, it means I'm really done. How do you read the words of this book? Are they life or death? For you, are they like life or death? Are these words to you, to us, this promise of healing and restoration, are these words that that we can find in our hearts resonate and joyfully embrace because we recognize that they are true? And so as our sin 
as our idolatry, as our iniquity is exposed, we respond to our stumbling with confession and repentance. Or are these words to us simply that? Words on a page or a screen that have no application to us, that make no diagnosis about us because we don't think we have a problem. It's those other people who are sick. If they just get it right, we wouldn't have these problems and the world would be a better place. I'm not an addict. I don't need healing or restoration. Church, how do you read the words of this book? Are they for you the words of life? Do you find in this amazing promise of God that he will love us freely, that he will turn to us in spite of our rebellious ways and lavish us with an abundant, gracious love that beautifies us from the inside out that makes us a people who radiate the glory of Jesus Christ, who make us a, that makes us a people who, who, who radiate the love of Jesus Christ to an onlooking world. Why? Why? What makes us look different? What makes us look different is not that we all of a sudden have our act together is that we, are a, we become a people who look beautiful to the world because the world doesn't know what it looks like to live a lifestyle of confession and repentance. The world doesn't know what it looks like to have a default perspective and humility of heart that says we will be defined by our willingness to confess our wrong, to repent and turn from them, to repent to the Lord and to offer forgiveness to one another even when we are wronged. Are we on the road to recovery by the grace, power, majesty, love, and glory of God? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you specialize in healing addicts. Thank you that you specialize, Lord, in beautifying people from the inside out. Lord, we do pray that it would be a mark of this body, that we would demonstrate a life of confession and repentance to your glory, that people might look and wonder and say, how is that happening there? How are those people loving and living with one another in such a way they're not defined by an arrogance, but of love that moves toward in confession and repentance and forgiveness? Make it so by your grace and to your glory, we ask through Jesus Christ our King. Amen.